you're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng. I'm talking to my friend Jackie, and uh, we're continuing a conversation that just... Well, before I go on, I should say hi. Hi. <laughs> and we're continuing a conversation that has to do with living the abuse-free life. And, and if, you re- if you've been listening to this series, you know that in the first um, episode, if we can call it that, we were talking about why it makes sense, why we all need to have an abuse-free life. And then the second, we were talking about how to make it possible for me to have an abuse-free life in terms of what I do so I can lay off my abusive behaviors. And believe me, we all have them. And by me, he means all of us. (laughs) (laughs) And today I thought we could talk about what do I do when the rest of the universe doesn't cooperate? I was thinking about that. (laughs) I was thinking about that last night is it's all well and good, though very difficult for me to make a decision that I am not going to be abusive. Right. And now I've mastered that. I'm the most patient, wonderful, loving person in the world that I am not abusive. But as you've been so clear, I can't control other people and what they do. Right. So. Yeah. So for me, it's a two pronged attack. I mean, I'm a I'm a dude. So I think in military metaphors, even (laughs) though I've never served in the military, but I've watched so many movies. I think I I think that's the same thing. Yeah, it's just exactly the same thing. And I think. I need to be able, if I'm serious about living an abuse-free life, and I, I truly am, I need to knock off my abusive behaviors, you know, all those demeaning tones of voices that I use or the um, guilt trips or even the, the worst stuff like um, intimidating tones of voice and yelling and, and that sort of thing. But if I'm serious, i got to eliminate that from others, and I know I can't control them, but what I can control is whether or not I speak up. And if I don't speak up, I'm not taking care of that second part of the two-pronged attack. Then that that two-pronged attack for me, as especially maybe me as a man because I have more um, pride, including maybe false pride, is that if I lay down for abuse and I let other people abuse me, I'm going to start storing that energy, becoming more and more resentful and I can't just repress it indefinitely. It's most likely going to get expressed in ways that are unhealthy. And so I can, I can let all the poop flow downhill <laughs> and, and go home and abuse my wife or my children or my dog or something like that. And you see children doing that where they get abused and then they go abuse their younger sibling. But if we're, if we're really going to be proactive about this as adults... And, and deliberate and successful, we've got to eliminate this notion that we're going to somehow be helpless in the face of other people abusing us. And then the quandary is, well, but I'm powerless over what other people do. I can't make them stop being abusive. And, and that is correct. But I can speak up. And I can establish boundaries. And then when those boundaries are violated, I can defend those boundaries and ultimately, if necessary, terminate the relationship. One, 
One thing that um, I have realized about myself, and it's taken me a really long time to figure this out. My, my, growing up, my, my family, we don't do conflict. You just store it away in the closet and then it will go away. Right. 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 Um, so when I was in my 20s, I had to learn how to do it. And, and one of the reasons it's necessary for me to deal with it is that I build it up in my head. If I don't know what's going on, if I think that you're upset with me or you've said something to me and I don't know why, I build it up to this crazy place in my head. Whereas if I just say, hey, you said this thing to me the other day, it hurt my feelings. You know, I thought you should know. Yeah, can we talk about it? Can we it? talk about it? And the person's like, oh, I was in a bad mood because of whatever. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, you know, for me, uh, this is a problem not only for uh, like the average lay person, but even with therapists. I, I, I had a friend who went to marriage therapy and he was angry and he looked angry and he sounded angry, but he wasn't being abusive. He wasn't, and there's, we have to draw a distinction between my feeling intimidated and the other person behaving in, the, in an intimidating way. So I might feel intimidated because you simply want to have a conflict with me about something that's really bothering you. And what happened my, with my friend in, in his therapy session is the therapist cautioned him and said, all right, now remember, use low tones, use low tones. And it was, <laughs> it was very much like uh, Coneheads, you know, the line out of the movie, maintain low tones. <laughs> <laughs> and he made fun of it from then on. But it, it, it really sabotaged the effectiveness of the therapy because, as we all know, by now, if you've been listening to these podcasts, conflict is an essential and inevitable part of every intimate relationship. And we have to draw a distinction between conflict on the one hand and abuse. And that's really hard. I've, I've noticed this with my clients who've been abused as children because for them, it's, it's a form of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And the trigger for them is people disagreeing. And the minute people start disagreeing, they start getting really upset and even angry. Uh, and they want to get out of the room. And sometimes they can't get out of the room because I'm between them and the door. <laughs> but it's, uh, there's, a, there's almost like a panic that sets in, even in grown men, because can we just talk about it? Why, why do we have to have all this arguing? And there's really no abuse going on. It's just two adults arguing about ideas. You know, it's funny about that. Um, and, it, and this is a form of PTSD for me, but um, yelling. And I've made this very clear, too. Everyone I work with in a relationship who's in my home, don't yell at me. Oh, right? yeah. Don't yell at me. And because people do. Sometimes they just get very excited and, and upset. If you have a problem with me, tell me you have a problem with me. Let's talk about it. Because I had a, I had an abusive stepfather. Um, but sometimes just saying that, because some people don't think about it. Right. They just raise their voice and they're, and they're excited and they don't mean to be abusive. But that's my trigger. Mm -hmm. Right. That's my mm -hmm. trigger. And so I need to tell people, don't do that. Yeah. So we want to get and I suppose this is once you get it in your head that abuse is different from conflict and that conflict is OK, then how do you tell the difference between abuse and just normal human uh, expression of emotion? And I, and I think uh, it, it's helpful, at least for me and I hope for everybody listening to this, that when people look loving and sound loving, um, I'm okay with that. And I and if they are loving and that's an uh, authentic representation of how they're feeling, that I need to be okay with that. Just as when they're afraid and they look afraid and they sound afraid, I can be okay with that, not make fun of them or put them down. But what if they are angry and they look angry and they sound angry 
when does it cross the line into abuse and when do I need to confront the, the abuse? And for me, uh, it's, it's really when it becomes yelling. So if I'm angry and I'm talking to you and you can tell that I'm speaking through clenched, a clenched jaw and that's different to me because you can see that I'm angry and upset versus uh, crossing the line into threatening tones of voice or intimidating tones of voice where I'm leaning into your space and I'm, I'm saying things that are um, threatening, and, whether it's in the content or the tone, and then I'm raising my voice. So an angry tone by itself, I think we, we, we've got to let go of that and let people be angry and sound angry. Right. And I, that's because I, I, you can be threatened when there's no yelling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and sometimes it's scarier when the voice goes down. Right, like in The Godfather. Right. The, the let's all talk in low tones. No, low tones are scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when they're abnormal, when somebody is obviously upset, but their voice gets calmer and calmer and calmer. And they're um, like in The Godfather, you know, where he, he says, well, I'm going to make him a deal. He can't. An offer he can't. An offer he can't re uh, refuse. So I think... Part of, you know, an essential part of living the abuse-free life is I want to embrace conflict, but I need to t terminate all the abuse that's directed to me. And that requires a tremendous amount of courage from both men and women, because I think so many of us have been raised to think that complaining and, and complaining about uh, the way you're treating me is a sign of weakness. And, and we're, we're kind of afraid someone is going to mock us and say, oh, did that make you feel uncomfortable? Oh, are you so sensitive you can't handle this? Uh, and I, whether we're male or female, I don't think it matters because my amygdala, you know, that part of the brain that assesses threat 24 hours a day, even when I'm asleep, um, that amygdala of mine is <laughs> really setting off all the alarms when you or somebody else in my life behaves in a threatening manner, I'm picking up on that, even if I don't really understand it or acknowledge it, because my brain is trying to warn me that at any second now, things could escalate from being abusive, uh, just verbally, to being abusive physically, and I could be in danger. And I think we ignore that amygdala at our peril because the prefrontal cortex can't really do its job of thinking clearly and making good decisions when we are intimidated. So, you know, for me as a therapist, for example, and I think this applies to parents, and I think it applies to spouses, if we don't establish a safe place where the room is safe for me as a therapist, as a father, as a spouse, then it's certainly not going to be safe for anybody smaller than me like my wife or my children or anybody like that. And I need that safe place for me to just think clearly because life is so challenging on its own. The last thing I want to do is try to solve my more serious problems while I'm simultaneously juggling a threat that's coexisting in the room while I'm trying to solve problems with the person I'm with. Right. I, I was talking to a, another therapist in a group just a couple weekends ago, and uh, she was a young woman who was describing uh, disrespectful behavior from some of the teens she was working with, 
And she kept using the word inappropriate. And that's a word we therapists, I think, are guilty of overusing. We call a lot of behavior inappropriate because we don't want to be judgmental. But at the same time, we want to terminate this behavior. And uh, inappropriate can mean so many things and, and ultimately nothing. Uh, so I asked her just for clarity's sake, is it possible that you would describe or you could describe this behavior as disrespectful? And she said, yes. How about abusive? She said, well, yeah. And, I, and, and it brought up this issue of how can you as a therapist help somebody in the room if you yourself are modeling tolerating abuse and doing nothing about it? Right. So she, she was you know, kind of excited about that and, and felt empowered to go back and call it out for what it was. And the great thing about that is for people who have a good heart, they, they hear that word abuse and none of us with a conscience like having our behavior described as abusive. And we might go into some denial. We might even argue about it. But it prompts this conversation where maybe we can come to some obje objective agreement as to what constitutes abusive behavior so that there's a now an understood standard between us so that now, even when I'm really upset, it's even when I've had a terrible day, even if my dog just died or my wife just left me, I don't really have the right to bark at you or call you names or yell at you. And that's not an excuse because there's no excusing abuse. Abuse is wrong. And I can explain how I came to be abusive, but in the end, I just owe you an apology. So, and we were talking earlier about um, as the person being abused, how do you, how do you call that out? Like, how do you, how do you let somebody know they, they owe you an apology? Uh, for me, uh, I, I get, I'm already getting confused when somebody's yelling at me or doing something <laughs> abusive. So I fall back on some training that, I've trained myself to break the ice in the conversation by saying, hold up, I'm feeling really uncomfortable right now. So that sort of puts a small pause into the conversation. And my rule in any discussion is I'm willing to really talk about everything. Right. But I'm not willing to talk about anything so long as there's ongoing abuse in the exchange. And for me, drawing attention to I'm feeling uncomfortable, and what's wrong? is usually the response from somebody who is abusive, if they even care enough to ask. And I, said, I'm, I started feeling uncomfortable when you called me stupid a few minutes ago or lazy. Or when you rolled your eyes at me. Or when you rolled your eyes at me or when you, you started taking that tone of voice. Well, what's wrong with that tone of voice? I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that tone of voice, but it's the tone of voice I use when I'm trying to humiliate someone. So maybe that wasn't your intent, but that's how what I heard. <laughs> yeah. And I feel really uncomfortable with that tone of voice. Well, I didn't mean to humiliate you. Well, you made it look effortless. <laughs> you may not have meant to, but I think it, it, it just came out that way. And frankly, I'm not comfortable with being treated that way. And I think you owe me an apology because that, well, I don't think I owe you an apology. Um, and I know apologizing is really difficult for some people. So I don't make that a control issue. I just let people know. I think, well, I think you do. And then I, and I would apologize to you if I treated you that way. And for me, at that point, I usually let it go. But I've got one in the bank, and they owe me an apology. And number two, 
I confronted them about the abusive behavior. So now that's a thing. It's a, it's a, a fact that's sitting in the room just as surely as he is sitting in the room and I'm sitting in the room. There's this observation that I know that his behavior was abusive and now he knows that I know. And it makes it really harder to get abusive the next time in the same conversation. Right. For any of us. Right. Because now you know you've been called out for that tone of voice or whatever it is. So if you do it again, you're almost in doing it intentionally now. Yes. And it makes it, I, you know, as a, as a father, I've been confronted by my children because sadly I've trained them too well. And they, they've confronted me about, well, wasn't it abusive when you did blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I have to say yes. Now, when I'm really on my game, well, after being abusive, uh, I make a point of going up to my children and apologizing and saying, or to my clients even, because I've been abusive with clients, sadly. And um, I've had to, I find it very effective to go up and apologize to my clients or my children or my wife, whoever it is I've abused, and say, well, I, I, I need to talk to you for a minute. I, I have an apology I need to make. The other day when I said this and this way, I was out of line. I, I was abusive, and I want you to know I'm really sorry. I apologize. And usually you get back something like, oh, no, that's okay. That w no big deal. And then I go on with the learning com part of the component. Well, it is a big deal because if you did that to me, I would really want you to apologize to me. And there's usually a little silence in the room. But there, what I'm doing is I'm actually communicating my boundaries, the boundaries I don't want crossed, by communicating what I do when I've crossed your boundaries even if you didn't know you had boundaries there. And it sets up a new moral uh, standard in the relationship, and it makes it really harder. It starts redefining the relationship. Now, does this always have an, a happy ending? Um, yes and no. No, in the sense that the other person doesn't always do what I wish they would do. Uh, sometimes our spouses can't adjust, and they keep abusing us, and either they leave us or we leave them. And sometimes bosses get really bent out of shape and can't look at that and continue being abusive, although that's not the norm. Most bosses, in, my, in the experience of my clients, they actually grow in respect for the employee. And most of the time, my employees who've confronted bosses, fearing that they could lose their job, they find that their boss respects them more, the relationship is more authentic, they start getting more promotions and raises, and it's a really good thing. So just to clarify, um, because it seems like you jumped to you might have to leave pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've yes. been in a relationship with somebody for 5, 10, 20 years. This is a pattern of behavior. Yes. This isn't going to change because I decide I am now going to have an abuse-free life and you can't abuse me anymore. It's not going to happen right away. Right. And the question is, how much time should we give that other person? Well, it seems like you should give them a little bit. Like 5 or 10 more years? Probably not five or ten more years. Because <laughs> so the question is an existential one. How, how much longer do I want to live in an abusive environment? But it's a habit, right? It's a habit. How we talk to one another is, is an established, ingrained habit that we both need to change. And you can't, I mean, a month? <laughs> a couple months? <laughs> well, well, I think you're right on for saying that. And uh, 
It reminds me saying right on is something I would said since the 70s. <laughs> but <laughs> Flashback. but it, it, it is correct what you're saying. And I've been accused before of promoting a zero-sum game where it's an all-or-nothing sort of a thing. But at the same time, I have to say, abusing people, once it's called out, it's not exactly confusing technology. You know, it, it's, I don't want to be yelled at. Is that all right with you? You know, and, and people may have a habit of raising their voice. But, you know, that habit doesn't usually come up in court when the judge is talking to them. They may be in the habit of, of yelling at people at work if they're a bit boss or something or at home if they're the big cheese at home. But when they get in other situations with their boss, they don't yell at their boss. So we all have an intuitive grasp of how to turn off the abuse spigot. And I think it's a matter of making sure the other person knows I'm deadly serious about this. It really matters to me, and I'm not going to be putting up with this indefinitely. And so how long is too long? I would say a year is too long. I would say a week or a month is too short of a time. So so would you say somebody who is in the habit of yelling or hitting walls or whatever it is to, you know, and a lot of times that's frustration. I've seen that where people, they just, they don't know, they don't have the words. So they get very frustrated. Um, therapy for them would probably be a good idea right? <laughs> to try to, And I understand how it is. Hey, you need therapy. Yeah, I, I, I have a plan on uh, maybe writing about this someday because, you know, therapists, um, therapists are human, too. And there's a wide range of quality, just as there is with any profession, lawyers, doctors and therapists uh, and all other professionals. Uh, exist along a continuum of self-awareness and, and quality of service. There are some therapists out there who haven't yet internalized a belief that says the abuse-free life is a, is a possible goal and a relatively easy and attainable goal. And they also haven't accepted that the abuse-free life is absolutely essential to having a good life or a good relationship because before we can get to good, we have to at least be safe enough to share the same space with one another. So when, a, a, when you have a therapist who's saying, well, John, don't you think you can let Katie yell at you sometimes when she's really upset? And I've heard therapists say things like that. Uh, I think that's the therapist who's not going to be helpful. And what we want to find are those therapists who can help us attain our goal. My goal is to have an abuse-free life with my spouse or with my children or uh, in my life generally, and I want to not abuse any of the people I care about who are around me. You know, if I get a crank phone call, maybe I, all bets are off and I can give myself freedom to have some recreational abuse. But in general, I want to have an abuse-free life. I think that's a doable goal, and, and, and yet there are still a lot of therapists who haven't yet figured that out. In fact, I was walking my dog a few years back and I saw a man and a woman get out of a van in the park. He got out, walked around the side of the van, and then slapped her right in front of me. Wow. And, and I, I, was, I was taken aback beca partly because I thought it was a pretty ballsy thing for a guy to do right in front of me. I was sort of offended. That, I mean, go ahead and abuse your wife, but for God's <laughs> sake. But not in front of me. <laughs> yeah, you got some nerve, buddy, doing that in front of me. And I didn't have a phone with me at the time, and... I'm out there in the middle of the park and and then he saw and but so I just stared at him 
And then he saw me staring at him and he told her to get back in the vehicle. And then he got in the driver's side and drove off. And I took out a stick like a good Boy Scout and I wrote the license plate in the in the dirt. And then just then, uh, fortuitously, a park ranger came driving by on one of those little uh, go-karts they have. And I said, do you have a phone? And I need to report a crime. And the crime got reported. The uh, police made the arrest. The prosecution went forward. And then I got a phone call thanking me for reporting the crime from the victim who found out that I was a therapist and she was a PhD psychologist living locally. So, you know, there's a lot. And she said the abuse had been going on for years in her own life. So therapists... I mean, this happens with lawyers who know it's against the law. It happens with doctors who know that it's wrong and they have to report abuse uh, in their practice. But we we have these um, pockets of denial in our lives. And this idea or this standard of an abuse-free life is something that's so wonderful. It's, it's almost unthinkable to people because abuse is such a highly normalized part of our lives. So... Once I get the moral conviction inside of me that I don't want to abuse anybody and I'm, I'm going to make a systematic effort to purge all the abuse out of my life, the next step is doing just what we're talking about. I have to call a halt to the abuse that's directed toward me. And that means I am now, once I've delivered news that I'm not going to tolerate abuse, that means I have to confront the abuse 100% of the time that it's that it's directed at me or around me, because if I fail to do that, what I'm doing in um, therapy terms is setting up a, an intermittent, intermittent schedule of uh, reinforcement where you get to abuse five times and the fifth one is free. You don't get called out on that. Or you get, the, you get to abuse three times and then I confront you on the fourth time. But that's never going to extinguish the behavior. The behavior only gets extinguished when my brain figures out this doesn't work. This isn't going to help. And in fact, this is going to contribute to a very negative outcome for me. I need to stop. So with somebody who isn't moral enough to have that personal conviction or they don't have the uh, personal self-regulation to be able to stop that behavior, like maybe somebody, a young child who has temper tantrums, or an older adult who has temper tantrums and has just handled life that way by kicking tires and uh, swearing and yelling and, and handling things that way. I do want to give them some time. And, and as long as I have reason to hope by watching a calendar, charting the abuse, asking myself, okay, is it getting better? Is the abuse getting less and less frequent? Is the severity of abuse getting less and less dire? And if, if I have reason to hope because I see things are improving, I'm going to stick around. But if I'm getting nothing but obstinate denial and the behavior is continuing and, in fact, maybe even escalating, it comes back to safety for me. If I'm not doing a good job of taking care of me and keeping myself safe, really everything I'm trying to do in life, work, relationship, parenting, Everything flows out of that. So, so I have one for you. <laughs> so what do you do if, if you can't get them out of your life? Say it's an, an ex-partner. Who's co-parenting who's with co-parenting you. Who's co-parenting with you or 
their family or, you know, different things like that, where these people, you do not have the option to walk away from these people. Right. It's my, let's say my brother's wife, and I only see her at family get-togethers, but every time I do, she's always abusive. Or somebody you see on a more regular basis. Yeah. And, and really, is it, it seems like I can't get them out of my, out of my life, but is it, is that really true? I mean, I, there's always murder. Um, We're not espousing murder. <laughs> Disclaimer. No, we call it homicide. It's <laughs> no. I I think that it's you know it's it's painful. But I've talked to literally hundreds of people who've excluded family members from their life because they were drunks, let's say, and they couldn't commit to sobriety when they would come over to the house and be around the children, or every time they went to their father-in-law's or their stepfather's home he would get verbally abusive and i get to i get to stop going over there after i've confronted him and after i've had more than one confrontation and discussion where he knows clearly what it is i'm looking for and he's simply unwilling to give up his abusive behavior um then i i do get to exclude him from my life now if he's a co-parent obviously you know sadly i have to say um, we all should have been a lot more careful who we decided to have children with. But we weren't. And but then, we weren't. And then we divorced them for a reason. And now our children are stuck with this person who gets intermittently abusive. And and with both of us who still have anger issues. You know, and obviously, and that's the way that I've been able to control mine is about the kids, focusing on the kids. But you still have, and I'm not saying this is happening to me. This is a general. Um, these relationships with your ex... They're still angry. You're still angry. Well, and yeah. now they don't feel the need to stop abusing you because you've already left them. What do you have? Well, I, and I want to respond to that, but I, I guess I want to remind everybody that we're not talking about extinguishing anger. Anger and resentment can endure. Abuse is a separate conversation. So I can be very angry and be non-abusive, and I can be abusive, and I've done this before. I, have, I can be very abusive with people I'm not particularly angry with. I'm not angry with them at all. I'm just disrespectful and abusive. So, you know, with with those people who have an overlapping life, like an ex, for example, I can limit my contact with them and terminate the abuse as far as it's directed to me. But heartbreakingly, I'm not always able to terminate the verbal abuse of the child. But you can teach the children to do I it can. themselves. Well, you know, thank you for holding that hope out. And I can teach children, except, you know, when you're eight years old and your dad who weighs 200 pounds is being abusive verbally, uh, calling you a stupid idiot or calling you a pansy or whatever he is um, calling you, that it's really hard for young children to do anything proactive in that moment. The thing that I, I think is essential in over the long haul is teaching them that that is abusive, that it's not all right, that and that as they get older, they will get stronger and bigger and they will be in a better position to limit that sort of behavior in their lives. Or to be able to walk away from it. Absolutely. So there'll be, there'll be so many options available to them as they get older. And judges in, in custody battles, they're very aware of this kind of thing. And judges are quite willing to put additional counseling requirements on parents who are abusive and they are also willing to take a look at custody and maybe custody needs to be monitored 
if someone is if if a 12 year old child can make a credible description of ongoing verbal abuse judges are willing to do something about that so it's not as though there's nothing we can do and the one thing about being a bully and and i've been a bully uh and and been abusive of course is that bullies want what they want without any consequences that are negative for them <clears throat> so if I'm a bully and I'm, I'm trying to control you through demeaning you, the last thing I want is for you to call me out on my abuse. That's really annoying. You're, you're changing the whole subject of the conversation. And it's like, it's like a, giving me a little bit of a bloody nose. I may be beating the crap out of you, but uh, every time I try to do that, you, you give me a little bit of a bloody nose. After a while, I'll go look for somebody weaker. So if I'm a really dark person who is committed to an abusive lifestyle and i don't want to give up that tool because it's really helped me through life uh, i'm just going to look for somebody easier to abuse so because we should probably start wrapping this wrapping this up <laughs> did i talk too long <laughs> so so in summation <laughs> we all deserve an abuse-free life we have to make that decision for ourselves say it out loud and it's funny how many people i've said this to because i get very excited about this topic me I say, too. I say, you deserve an abuse-free life. And they're like, well, obviously. And I say, say it. I deserve an abuse-free life, which means that I need to control myself and not be abusive. And then I need to call people out who are abusive toward me. Right? Yes, little grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> and if that doesn't change the behavior, then I may need to leave. I may need to take some additional action. And, and that may mean uh, just a family meeting. To decide if we're if we as a family are going to be abusive or non-abusive. Generally, all the littler people in the family vote yes on an abuse-free life. But sometimes uh, these discussions are really illuminating. And in any case, the whole matter is is something that it isn't terribly complicated, but it's more complicated than just making a decision and changing things over in one day. It does take practice. It does take time. But it's a goal worth working toward, and it gets better and better with each year of your life. It gets easier and easier, too. Absolutely. Once you start calling people out, it's so much easier to do it the next time. And I've, I've experienced 22 years with my wife that have been essentially abuse-free, except for the poor, unfortunate woman I live with. I've, I think I've been abusive of her a couple of times and had to apologize you know, sincerely and profusely for that. Um, but, yeah, it's a goal worth working toward because everything else follows from having an abuse-free life. Um, I'm Stephen Ng, talking with my friend Jackie, and uh, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about, go ahead and contact us on Twitter. Tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been a production by Ing Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.